We're going to have our reading now, so we're carrying on in our series in John after a little break last week. So it's John chapter 12, starting at verse 37, and that's page 1080 in the Red Bibles or on the screen behind me. So it's page 1080, and it's John chapter 12, starting at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah spoke this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the world to judge, to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I'm Simon. Uh, It's great to be able to open God's Word together. Please do have it open in front of you. You're not here to listen to me. Uh, I'm simply a tool through which the Lord will speak to. We're we're hosting Christmas. Uh, And the whole family of... so that certain people were sitting in certain places. And to put it bluntly, it wasn't quite how Ruth would have chosen to sit for Christmas lunch. Um, Ruth was over at an end of the table uh, with me, a former maths teacher, my brother-in-law, a current maths teacher, and my uncle, a former maths teacher and current maths tutor. Now, you can kind of get an impression as to what the conversation was over the turkey and the sprouts, Um, And it wasn't exactly the kind of Christmas lunch conversation that Ruth would have gone for. Now, don't get me wrong, Ruth was good at maths when she was at school. She did A-level maths for a full day. Um, But it wasn't quite the topic of conversation that she wanted to go for. And so in our house, I'm I'm banned from telling any maths jokes. And the conversation of maths, she just begins to glaze over and just doesn't listen very much. To be honest... It's a situation that I get quite a lot. You see, for many, it's when I talk about cricket. 
Now, I'm convinced that any of you here, give me enough time and I will convince you that cricket is amazing. But most people don't really give me that amount of time to be able to convince them that cricket is fantastic. I don't have a particularly high success rate when it comes to these things. And whether it's maths, whether it's cricket, whether it's technology, whether it's the north, I have these conversations about things that I get excited about and it just bounces off the people that I'm listening to. They're just not interested. I wonder if that's your experience when you're talking about Jesus. See, for many people here, Jesus is their all. You love Jesus. Your life is defined by who Jesus is. And yet when you talk to your friends and to your family, it's like you're talking to a brick wall. It's like all of the things that excite you, all of those things that get you out of bed in the morning, that thrill you about the future, they just bounce off as if you're talking Spanish when they don't understand a word. If Jesus is so amazing, if Jesus is as life-changing as Christians say he is, why don't more people believe? Why is it that when we see that 46% that came out of the census, we all give that knowing nod and like, yeah, it's not even close. It's probably nearer three, three percent of our nation who know, trust, and love the Lord Jesus. This idea of belief is key in John's gospel. All the way through, it's about believing. It's about seeing Jesus and believing. With John telling us the very function of his book, the reason that he wrote is so that we may see that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen king, and believe that he is the Son of God. And on our journey through this book, we've reached chapter 12, which functions a bit like a hinge, a kind of turning point in the midst of the book. We see that in the pace. Chapters 1 to 11, they cover about three years. Chapters 13 to 21, they cover just under a week. Everything slows down. The first part of the book has been dominated by Jesus' signs. Miracles that reveal his glory, that put the heart of who he is on display. He's building up a body of evidence so that we may see who he is. And it builds up a whole lot of interest. There are crowds flocking to see who Jesus is, to see what he will do next. But there's a repeated phrase on Jesus' lips in the midst of these signs. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. See, he knows that turning water into wine, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, all of these signs are just glimpses of what will be his greatest work his death upon the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And in the middle of John chapter 12, flick back to verse 23, we read these words. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. My hour is not here. And then finally, the hour has come. And it's from here that the, play, the pace slows down. The action reduces. See, Jesus' focus changes from his public ministry to the Jews to preparing his disciples for what is ahead, moving from the signs of glory to the hour of glory, to his time of glory. But as this change of focus happens, as we move from this public display to this private preparation, an important question is asked. 
See, in the early part of chapter 12, we watched as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Look back to verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This great crowd, hundreds and thousands of people, shouting praise to Jesus. What a moment this is. What a moment of glory we see at this time. Here is the king, and he is to be with his people. Yet look where we finished last time we were in John, at the end of verse 36. When he, that's Jesus, had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. From the adulation of possibly upwards of a million people to hiding himself. In the matter of just a few short hours, he's gone from hero to zero. And that raises a problem. It should raise a problem if we are thinking people. If Jesus is so amazing, if he is as life-changing as Christians say, why don't more people believe? Why is it difficult? Why do I find it easier to talk about maths than I do to talk about Jesus? Now, we see it's a valid first century question. Do you remember these words from the opening chapter of John's Gospel? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his people. He came to his crew, to his clan, and they said no. What does it say that his own people didn't believe in him? And it's a valid 21st century question too. Why don't more people believe? And maybe this morning, that's you. When I was a maths teacher, uh, towards the end of one of the lessons, uh, a girl said to me, Sir, I can see this really excites you, but it really bores me. I didn't quite know how to take that. Clearly, I was giving off the right vibe. It just wasn't being accepted. And while boredom might be too strong a word to describe you, you don't really get why everybody else is into Jesus. You just don't see it. It's just not part of your life whether it's those in Jesus day or whether it's today how do we deal with the fact that people don't believe what does that tell us about him well as chapter 12 ends we'll see that question being answered we're just going to look at two things we're going to see the nature of unbelief and then we're going to see the response to unbelief so first the nature of Unbelief. See, this passage, it gives us three reasons why people don't believe. And we see the first in verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Since the moment that Jesus turned water into wine, the first of these miraculous signs, he'd been performing these signs that revealed who he is, that put him on display and showed that he was God's king, promised throughout the Old Testament, come to rescue his people. That's what Jesus is doing through these signs. There were lots of them. John describes it as so many signs. There was this weight of evidence being built. And the people definitely saw them. That's what John tells us. They were performed in their presence. There was no um, possibility they could say, no, 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 I didn't see it. I didn't catch it. It wasn't going on. Everybody saw it. There was no doubt that they happened. And yet they would not believe. Their response to Jesus being a settled rejection that simply ignored the signs. 
funny, isn't it, that today it's Christians who are accused of ignoring evidence, having a lack of flexibility in our thinking. And while I don't deny that that does happen sometimes, actually it certainly works both ways. Do you know the real Jesus? Have you looked properly at the evidence, seeing who he was, who he is, what he did, all of the claims that Christians make to investigate to see whether they are true? If you don't believe, if your family and your friends don't believe, is it a hard-heartedness that says, I'll ignore Jesus regardless of what I see or what I hear? When I look at the Bible and see what he did, I'll ignore it. When I look at people's lives around me and see the difference Jesus makes, I will ignore that too. It's a dangerous game to play. Though it's one that's always been played. As John takes us back into the Old Testament to show that's how it always was. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, this verse from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, it begins a prophecy about Jesus. And the answer that we are supposed to give to this question is no one. No one's believed our message. No one has the arm of the Lord been revealed to. See, no one naturally believes the message of the Lord. It's only possible when the arm of the Lord, him coming in all of his power, is revealed. Which leads to the next part of the nature of unbelief. One that can be a little bit more uncomfortable than the first. Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. Would not believe, could not believe. And John then takes us to a different part of Isaiah's book to explain. Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah has said elsewhere... He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. See this, recounted in uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah's book, is an astounding moment in Isaiah's life. He, He sees a vision of the Lord in the temple and is blown away by his glory, his holiness, his majesty. He sees God as he is. And he responds in the only way possible. He cries out, woe is me. This guy is a prophet. This guy has been set apart by the people of God to talk through what God has said. And yet he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. The things that I say are not righteous, and I live amongst an unclean people. It is an astounding moment, and yet God deals lovingly and tenderly with him. He forgives his sin. He takes away his uncleanness. And he gives him a job to do. He says, I want you to go and I want you to bring my word to the people. But those words that we see in verse 40 are what he is supposed to say. The reason for the belief of the nation is that the Lord has hardened hearts and blinded eyes. Now this can be hard to take to explore the sovereignty of God, that he is in control of everything, can take us down roads that we don't like so much, can lead us to conclusions that the Bible suggests are true, and yet maybe don't fit with our thinking. But the Bible never stops us, never stops us exploring these things. In fact, it encourages us to take those journeys. So where do we go on this road under God's sovereignty? 
But whenever we see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it's not just about those verses. It's like a hyperlink, like a footnote that takes us back to that whole section of the Old Testament. And Isaiah's reaction to God's declaration that he is to bring that message is this. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? Are you going to keep hearts hard? Are you going to keep eyes blind forever? Is this just the way that it's always going to be? And nobody will be able to respond to you. Well, then God God responds. And the end of his response is this. But as the terebinth, that's a type of tree, and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And if you read that whole section of Isaiah, you understand that this seed and stump picture is all looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. How long will this hardness, how long will this blindness last? Well, God is saying there is a sense in which it will last until, but only until, the Lord Jesus comes in his glory. He's saying that the purpose and the time frame of the unbelief is for Jesus to be revealed. See, Jesus of Nazareth, he was indeed the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was a Jew who came for his people. And yet God's plan was always that he would be the savior of the whole world. You and I, for those of us here who aren't Jews, we are saved through the Jewish Messiah because he came to bless the entire world. Jesus' path to the cross was paved with that unbelief. Yet from the cross flowed power to believe as the arm of the Lord was revealed in most spectacular way as Jesus, as God's power was seen through Jesus' weakness upon the cross. Something John shows us in verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. See, Isaiah was given a glimpse of the future as he saw the glory of God, Jesus Christ, And rather than leading to unbelief, it led to a life speaking about him. Isaiah was part of this people. And yet, his heart was melted and his eyes were unblinded, were opened because he saw Jesus. When Christ is seen and the arm of the Lord is revealed, belief follows. See, God is sovereign. God is completely in control And so we should be constantly in prayer. Where else can we go? What else can we do when we're batting against a brick wall? What else can we do when we don't see a way forward? We go to the God who is in control of it all. And we cry out and we say, God, help me. Show me. God, do what I cannot do. There are things that we just can't understand without him. And so he gives us light so that all the glory is his and not ours. Nobody here, nobody in this world is a Christian because of me. Nobody's a Christian because of Neil. Nobody's a Christian because of anybody in this room. You are a Christian because of God. Now in his abundant glory, in his glorious love, he uses us and that is astounding. But he is the one who shines light and brings salvation. Brothers and sisters, how much do you pray for your unbelieving friends and family? It's almost accepted that when we talk about reaching others for Christ, that we talk about and we share rightly how it can be nerve-wracking and we can be fearful when we want to talk to others about Jesus. 
but I for one don't admit how little I pray for my friends and my family. Sometimes I think it's all about how clever my arguments can be and how accurate my reasoning can be. Sometimes it's because I think probably that nobody can say there's no hope for them at all and so I just give up. Actually, we should be on our knees before our God saying, Lord, please, please, please. Yes, we do what we can. Yes, we do come up with good ways to answer questions. And yes, we get to know our Bible better so we can answer questions. Yes, we try and understand the culture so that we can show how all of life is answered in Jesus. But ultimately, we pray because he is the one who brings light where there is darkness. So the nature of unbelief, it involves would not believe and could not believe, but also almost believe. See, it seems we have a note of positivity in verse 42. Yet at that time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Fantastic, even amongst the leaders, amongst the religious mafia, amongst those who are plotting to kill Jesus, there are those who believe. There's a chink in the wall of unbelief. But John is quick to show the reality. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. For fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. See, these are people who think that Jesus is a good guy. Who think he's got something helpful to say. But are not willing to go all in. Because ultimately for them, human acceptance is more important than acceptance from God. They're more worried about what their neighbor, what their family member, what their work colleague thinks about them than they are about God. And that's me. And I wonder if it's you. So often the person standing in front of me has more impact on my life than the God who made me and the God who saved me. You know, I find it so much easier to stand here and talk to 120 of you than I would to talk to one person who doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because I appreciate human praise more than I appreciate God's praise. Do you see? Do you see how this secret belief, this, this hidden belief, isn't actually belief at all? Because it doesn't place God where he is supposed to be. It doesn't place him as the king who is over all. It basically places him in my pockets. And I bring him out from time to time. Are you following Jesus in secret? That actually here for this hour and a half, it's quite easy because most other people do. But for the rest of the week, it's hidden. It's hidden. We're not willing to walk the path of discipleship that Andrew took us through a couple of weeks ago. And so our faith, their faith, is shown to be shallow and in the end, non-existent. I pray that isn't true for us. I pray that we will be bold because we love Jesus, because we long that people would see him. So why do people not believe? Why do probably 97% of our nation not believe. For some, they will not. Their hearts are hard to God's love and their eyes are blind to the evidence. For some, they cannot. God's power has not been seen in their lives. Maybe because prayers for them are lacking. Or maybe they almost do. That they've seen something of Jesus and they quite like bits of it 
but the allure of this life is greater than that of the next. They'd rather live in the now than be storing up treasures in heaven. Where do you see yourself? Where are you on that spectrum? Where are your friends and where are your family? Where are your neighbors, your work colleagues, your schoolmates? Where are we all in relation to Jesus? Unbelief is a reality and we need to cry out to God to act in power. And when we do that, what is his response to unbelief? Look at verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Do you see this man? Do you see the heart of the Lord Jesus here? The one who had to hide in verse 36 to protect himself now stands in public and shouts, cries, screams, the Greek word tells us, to these people whose hearts are hard and whose eyes are blind. And he goes again. And he says, come to me and believe. Because when you believe in me, you believe in the God who made you. His response to people ignoring him, disbelieving him, plotting to kill him, is to point again to God's. It's to say, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are, what your background is, what your current thinking is about me. Look to God and be saved. Do you see the compassion, the love? He responds to unbelief by continuing to proclaim, continuing to show who he is and why he's came. And as Jesus' public ministry in this form, it comes to an end we get this summary of who Jesus is and why he came. In verses 44 and 45, we see that he is God himself, the Son sent by the Father to reveal God and to enable people to believe. We see in verse 46 that all of us are in darkness. We're all cut off from the God who made us lost in the darkness of our sin that blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts. Yet Jesus comes as a light. What do we need in the darkness? We need light. And he comes to be the light of life. And he comes with words of compassion and words of warning. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. See, despite every way he has been treated, knowing that he'll be put to death before the week is over. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, says he hasn't come to judge, but to save. It is astounding. A click of the fingers would have brought down 10,000 angels for every rebel in before him. Destroyed them all, and Jesus has been taken back to heaven in the chariot. And yet what does he do? He says, I've come to save, not to judge. His heart is to save, and his response to unbelief is to show more of himself, to put more of himself on display. See, if you're here this morning and you don't believe, you might have 101 questions. And I don't want to downplay them. I don't want to come across as patronizing, but the primary answer is always Jesus. Look at him. See him. See how he responds. See his heart on display. See when you strip everything away who he is. 
see him. Look at him in the Bible. Spend time with him in prayer. Get Christians to tell you why he is so special and understand the love that brought him down from heaven to earth. It is Jesus. But remember that it comes with a warning. Verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. See, there is a day coming when all will be judged. You will be judged and I will be judged. Not on whether we've done more good things than bad. Not on whether we've found enough people who we're better than, that they can go that way and we'll go that way. But how we responded to Jesus and his words. That's the only question. How did you respond to Jesus and his words? You can reject him. You don't have to accept his words. But it is utter foolishness. Foolishness because of who Christ is. Why would you reject one who is so glorious, who is so majestic, who is so sacrificially loving, who has placed such a glorious hope before us? Why? Why would you reject that Jesus? Beginning of verse 50, I know that his command leads to eternal life. That's what Jesus lays before us. And it's foolishness because there is a condemnation for those who reject, for those who turn their back on Jesus and live in the darkness, an eternal darkness from which there will be no relief and no salvation. See, in the end, it doesn't really matter if I can't get you on board when it comes to maths or cricket or Manchester. It doesn't matter. They're just parts of me that are different from parts of you. But there is nothing more important for you and for those that you know to see Jesus Christ, to see the light of the world, the one who brings purpose and meaning and hope for all who would put their trust in him. Give your life to him. And don't just take my words for it. You're not just listening to me. I have my story, but it's only a part of the bigger story. See him. See him in his own words and believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I stand here this morning simply as a testimony that you have revealed your power. That you took someone broken, someone in darkness, someone bound for hell, and you turned me around because you enabled me to see Jesus. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning. I pray for the families and friends and communities, workplaces and schools that are represented here. And Father, I pray that you would strip away all of those things that cause unbelief. And that many would see Jesus for who he is. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would be a praying people. That we would do all we can. And yet we would fall to our knees knowing that it's not enough. Knowing that only you can do that saving work. 
pray that we would see the incredible response to unbelief from Jesus and just see that this man who is all love who is all mercy who is all compassion who as we'll see over the final week of his life gives his all so that we may know you I pray that we and those that we love would cry out hallelujah all we have is Christ for he is all we need Father thank you for sending Jesus we believe help our unbelief in his eternal name